If you would like to borrow a Bible, would you please raise your hand? And the ushers will bring you a Bible and you can follow along with us as we go through our passage this morning. Just raise them up and leave them uh, when you get your Bible and just leave it in the pew when you're done. Next week, don't forget, we're going to be at the Orrington Hotel. So if you show up here, we'll send you back over there. The next two weeks we'll be there. So look forward to seeing you at the Orrington Hotel over the next two weeks at 10 o'clock. This past Wednesday night, I had the opportunity to meet with a couple in our church who just got back from a short-term mission trip from India. Next Sunday, I'm going to interview a a woman from our church who has been on a longer-term mission trip to China. When I meet and interact with people like this, I get so fired up about what God is doing around the world. But one of the things that I think is a a huge misconception is that the radical work of God overseas cannot be duplicated in America. Maybe you think the same way. That somehow all the the radical work of God, the, the steps of faith, the prayer and the sacrifice are only for those overseas But for us on American soil, that we're kind of destined for this rut of apathy. Don't you believe it? Don't believe that. The same God who is working overseas and moving in powerful ways overseas, the same God who is working right here, and the same God who uses people as they go around the world to spread the gospel, is the same God who wants to use you right here to make maximum impact for His glory in the life that you're in right now, where you live, in the community you're in. He wants to use you to make impact for His glory. And I want you to leave here today actually believing that and living that way. And seeing it in his word. That that's the way he wants you to live. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5 now. So let's go ahead and stand as we read the passage this morning. As we're going to the book of Matthew, we're now in Matthew 5, verse 11. We finished up the Beatitudes last week. And now we're starting in verse 11 through 16, Matthew 5. Let me read the scriptures to you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything said to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. Last week we started with the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes, remember, like these small, concise statements 
that are a description of how those who live within the kingdom of God function. What's their, their identity, their characteristics. It's not talking about how to get into the kingdom. It's talking about those who are already in the kingdom, how they live and act internally and externally. Don't think that the, the Beatitudes are like this set of impossible commands or, or ideals to keep, but they're descriptions of how God is already rescuing, already forming, and already blessing His people for His glory. So that's where we were last week in the Beatitudes. Now, as we start to transition here a little bit, we're going to move into a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that is going to describe the impact of those within the kingdom, those of you who are believers, your impact upon the world. That's what we're going to talk about. That, that as you live in the kingdom norms and the kingdom values and the kingdom standards, you live in the Beatitudes, you will have a certain impact upon people on this earth. As we've been transformed, as we follow the king, there are two things I want you to keep in mind today. As we live within the kingdom norms, we are going to be a distinct people, and yet we're going to be a people that engage the world and the culture and those who don't know Christ. So we're going to be distinct from them, and yet engage them with the gospel. Those two things you've got to keep in mind. Because we're going to set out as we're transformed people to continue to remain distinct and yet engage the world. And, you know, I guarantee you that every single person in here who is a follower of Jesus Christ wants to have an impact upon this world. There's no one in here who says, you know, I just want to live this lame life where it's all about me and impact no one. Every single person in here wants to have an impact, right? For the kingdom, for the glory of God, not for ourselves, but for God. And we want to be a distinct people. And we want to engage. And you're, you're all on board. But I want to tell you this. This is where we're going to start. We're going to start on a note of suffering. Because you live a distinct life that engages the world, it's likely that you will suffer. Some to different degrees, but all of us, as we live Christians in this world, you will suffer. And that's where we're going to start. So let's jump into verse 11. Let's see how the distinctively engaged have this response to them of suffering. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what we have here in verse 11 through 12 it is, it is an elaboration on the eighth beatitude and kind of transitioning us into describing one of the world's responses to believers. One of the world's responses to believers will be persecution. We will see another response at the end, a different response. But for here, it's persecution. And these false accusations, as you can tell, and these physical attacks, they do not come from more morality in general, but become because we are connected to Jesus. Did you catch the phrase there in verse 11? He says, he says, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So we're persecuted, or believers are persecuted, opposition because of the connection to Christ. And the range of opposition can come from false accusations at work because someone doesn't like Christians, all the way to Christians in different countries being beheaded because they convert to Christ. It's a range of opposition. But when believers are being opposed by those who do not follow Jesus Christ, the thing they need to keep in mind is that there is 
a reward, and there is a connection with those in the past who have suffered. There is a reward in heaven, and there's a connection with the prophets who are before you. Let's start first with this reward. For those who suffer on this earth, for Christ's sake, what kind of reward will there be in heaven? I'm not quite sure what that looks like. I do know that Jesus is our king and he is our reward. Beyond that, I'm not quite sure what the reward will look like. But I do know that the suffering now will not compare to the reward later. The suffering now will just seem like nothing compared to the reward we will receive later. The Apostle Paul, a man who suffered much in beatings and shipwrecks, sleepless nights, you name it, made this statement in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He said, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we have this great reward that's going to come to us when we're with Christ one day. They'll make our suffering seem as nothing. But not only do we have this great reward coming, but those who suffer now have this connection with the Old Testament prophets. And I love that Jesus mentions this. Because he's basically saying that Christians function like Old Testament prophets. Christians have, in a sense, this prophetic role where they speak truth to the culture. And they also speak truth to the religious folk. And it's not always received well. And as the prophets were persecuted in the Old Testament, so will believers today be persecuted as well. There's a connection with the Old Testament prophets. But as there's a connection with the Old Testament prophets, there's also a connection with the reward. Great is your reward in heaven. There is this blessedness. Now, it's so hard to talk about persecution here in Evanston in this American culture. Um, for those of you from different parts of the world, you're, you're much more familiar with it. I know some within our congregation are, are much more familiar with it than we would be who have just stuck it out here in, in America. It's, not, it's nothing to make Americans feel guilty about. I mean, that's, that's just the way it, it's happened. But I think it's very important for those who have not experienced persecution to have an affinity with those who have. I think as we're around other people who have been persecuted for Jesus, it kind of makes us bold, doesn't it? It kind of just makes us want to speak up for his name and, and live in the gospel no matter what. And so we need to be around people who have been persecuted. We need to just kind of mix our lives with them. I don't know if it's through the Internet. I don't know how, how it is we run across them, but we need to hang out with those people because it makes us bold. A couple weeks ago, I went to go get my, my hair cut. And, uh, and the lady who cuts my hair, she cuts some of your hair too. It looks good. <laughs> you know who she is. She, she's from Iran. And every time I go get my hair cut with her, she tells me stories about persecution in Iran. Iran's, they're believers there, they're really getting cracked down on right now. But while I was over there uh, getting my hair cut two weeks ago, she introduced me to a lady in her salon from Egypt. And, I, I, and this, then she goes, she, she goes, here, come talk to this lady from Egypt. So I go over there, and the lady, like, has her cape on and her hair coloring in. And poor girl, she's talking to me. She's talking to me about this persecution in Egypt. And she said, tonight, I think it was, like, January 7th. She goes, tonight's the start of our Christmas. And my father, who's a pastor, is, is on the hit list to be killed. And he's a pastor in Chicago. And his church was threatened to be bombed. And you think, well, those, those, are, those aren't real threats. Oh, they are. Because a church in Egypt was just bombed and many Christians were just killed. So it's a, it's a real threat. 
And so I, I asked her, I, I said, you know, can, can I pray for you? Can I, can I, what, what can I do, you know, can, can I pray? And so I went over there, and she's sitting in the chair with her cape on, hair coloring in. She's like, can we pray here? This, this is this going to work? Okay, yeah, let's pray. So I pray for her, you know, pray for protection of her church and her father. And she's a believer. I mean, she's a legit believer. And so I finished praying because her service was that night at midnight, and, and I'm done praying. And so when I'm finished, she asks me, she goes, hey, do you want to come to church tonight? And I'm like, and I, I was totally stuck. I didn't move. I, did, uh, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, do I want to die tonight? That's what I'm thinking. And my hairdresser, she totally sees that I'm like frozen. And she said, she said, she said, oh, he has kids. He can't go. She like rescued me, right? She pulled, and then I went over there like, uh, and I went to get my hair cut. And what my hairdresser was saying is, he has kids to take care of. He can't go to the service that night. And what I'm thinking, I have kids. That means I can't die. That's what I'm thinking. And can you imagine telling, telling God that? Okay, God, I have kids, so I'm going to sit this one out. Think God would buy that? You, you think that girl from Egypt would buy that? She wouldn't buy it because she told me that believers in Egypt have like three to five people that they know in their sphere of influence, like almost every believer there, who've been killed for following Jesus. See, I need to be around someone like that. It, it makes me bold. It makes me quit making excuses to think, well, you know, I've got to take care of my family, and so I can't, I can't stick my neck out there. Or, you know, I'm on this good, cordial relationship with my neighbors and our people in the dorm, and I don't want to say anything to offend them. Or I have a really good, secure job, so I want to make sure that I'm kind of crafty and I don't really say much. And you know what? Jesus says, when we stick our neck out there and we're distinct, engaged people, persecution will come. And it will cost us something to be a Christian. It will cost us something. And we need to be around those who are willing to lay down their lives so that we'll speak up. And Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. And, and I, I, I just, I'm so glad we started there. We had to start there with persecution. Because if we're going to have to transition and talk about salt that's distinct and light that's engaged, but we have got to keep in mind the reality of persecution. Because our best, most organized, most missional efforts in this world will not always be received positively. And it shouldn't make us quit. It should make us keep going. So let's move into the salt and light metaphors here that you're very familiar with. Just kind of give you a quick overview. Salt, general description, is going to describe a distinct people impacting the world under the reign of God in Christ. A distinct people impacting the world under the reign of God in Christ. And light is going to speak to how believers are not to withdraw but to engage the world. Okay, so that's the two overviews. Let's just jump into them. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Let's just stop there. What, is, what does that mean? I mean, there are many ways that that has been interpreted through, through over the years. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. Some think it's like a, a preservative. You know, they didn't have like refrigerations. You take the salt and you rub it into the meat or the fish and it keeps it from deteriorating. 
And the idea is that's the way Christians are supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to restrain evil by our lives and our actions. Some have understood salt to mean like a, it's like a, a flavoring, like you put on your food, right? So the believers are, we're have to be kind of like this kingdom-centered seasoning that has this positive impact upon others. Well, some even believe that salt has something to do with fertilizer, like it would work as a fertilizer in some soils. And so that means as, as believers go out and follow Jesus, we'll promote God's growth and the kingdom. And just to be honest with you, I don't know what it means. There's so many different options of what it can mean and great arguments on why it means this and that. And maybe it means all those things. But here's what it has to do with. It has to do something with believers having an impact upon the world. So however you interpret salt, it has to do with believers having an impact upon, upon the world. So as we start to embody the Beatitudes and these kingdom norms and these standards, then we're going to have an impact upon the world. So let's all agree on that. We're going to have this impact. But look what he says as he continues. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So somehow, Jesus is saying that salt can lose its taste and distinctiveness. He doesn't say how. But if the distinctiveness of salt is gone, then it's useless because it's not functioning as salt. So just take it and just throw it out and trample it under people's feet because it's no longer worth anything. And the connection to the disciples are, listen, if you're not salty, if you're not impacting this world, you are a useless disciple. You are an imposter disciple. You're not functioning with your identity. You're not functioning as salt should function. You're not impacting the world as you should impact the world. So the salt metaphor is a warning to every believer to examine your life and say, are there any ways that the world is trying to make me mix in and blend in to make me non-salty? And if that's the case, then I'm useless. Because disciples, by their nature, are supposed to in, impact the others in this world who don't know Christ or to be distinct and yet impact. And if that's not ha- happening, you're a useless disciple. I've been reading this book. It's a good one. It's called Kingdom Ethics. And it talks about one of the implications of the church being salt on the earth. This is, this is so good. They, they argue in their book that the salt metaphor should say that those who are believers, the church, should be this pioneering community. That since the church is distinct in the world and going in a different direction in the world, then the church actually should be out front leading the way for the world and showing the world, look, we're going to show you, and this is great, we're going to show you what it means to faithfully follow God. Do you, ever, do you ever think that? Like, okay, okay, world, watch me. This is how it's done. I'm going to show you what it means to faithfully follow God. So we're to be this pioneering community that, that, that sets out first to follow God's will, and we move out in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we show the whole world this is what it means to follow Christ. And in the past, we have rocked at this. Wouldn't you agree? 
When you look backwards at the church, you go, man, they did a lot of good stuff. Remember back in the days when the church was like pioneering, establishing hospitals? Remember those days? Now, you weren't even born. Neither was I. But it's, it happened. The church was establishing hospitals. The church was establishing schools. The, the church was reforming prison. The church was seeking the abolition of slavery. The church was establishing nursing homes and, and orphanages. And while the church was doing this, they were proclaiming Jesus Christ. They're taking the gospel into every sector of community, and they're showing the world, we've been transforming the gospel. Watch us. And you would agree with me that it would be pretty awesome if the church could step it up again. That the church around the world would say, you know what, we're going to be in Haiti until it's rebuilt. We're going to quit griping about what's not been done, and we're going to go there, and we're going to stay, and we're going to build that country. And we're going to go over to Pakistan where all those flood and all those displaced people, and we're going to do something about that. We're going to set the standard of what it means to care. And we're going to go to those African nations, from Christians from around the world, including African Christians, go there where there's been warring tribes and the genocide. You know what? We're going to show, we're going to lead the way for reconciliation. And we're going to go into the streets of Chicago, and we're going to say, no more killing. We're going to do something about that. And all along, we're going to bring the gospel. And that would be pioneering, right? People would take notice, and they would say, wow, we're going to pay attention to what's going on here. What are these Christians saying? But guess what? None of that stuff's going to happen. We're not going to do these huge pioneering acts unless we first take small, little pioneer actions right where we live within our own community. I mean, some of us have these big old visions of, of changing the world, and yet we don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do anything. We craft visions, we write them on paper. I mean, we don't do anything where we live, but we're going to save the world. So we've got to start with these small little pioneering things. And so I was just thinking about, you know, we have these little ethos communities. They're like, like small groups. And, and I think it's a good idea when someone gets sick in your group or someone has a baby in your group. I, this is a brilliant idea. Like, give them food. Take food to them, right? Don't be talking about world hunger if you can't feed your brother and sister. And as you do that, your neighbors will be like, man, who are all these people that keeps bringing you all this food? And you say, it's the church, and we got some for you. And more than food, that's salt. And, and when you have some issues within your church or some disagreements or some infighting within the church, don't be talking about reconciling African tribes after genocide. What are you talking about? You can't even reconcile with one another. Don't be talking about it. Reconcile with one another through peacemaking, little small pioneer opportunities within your own community, and the world will take notice, and they'll say like, man, you guys are pretty messed up, but at least you deal with your issues in a peaceful way, and you tell them why. It's because the gospel has changed us. We're bringing peacemaking. The church is to be on the front lines of pioneering activity. We're to be a pioneering community. But we're not going to get into these grand scale things. If we're not taking care of these simple things within our own community. Would you agree? Is it ridiculous to talk about changing the world? You're not going to change your own life? We're salt. We're called to be a distinct people. Pioneering the way on the grand scale in our own personal lives. 
Let's move into this light metaphor now. Look at verse 14. Look at the salt metaphor. Look at the light. Verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, you know that Jesus is the light of the world, right? You've heard that before. It says that earlier. And actually, in chapter 4, verse 16, that says about Jesus, it says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus has infiltrated the darkness. And not only is he the light of the world, but those of us who have followed him, who've been transformed by the cross, transformed by grace, are also called the light of the world. I want to make sure you understand this. Your nature, my brother, your nature, my sister, is light. And you're called to function as light within the darkness. And it's not just you as an individual, so don't just think of this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. Don't, no, 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 don't, no, no, no. Think of more of a community. Think of about a, a city set on a hill. And what does it say about a city set on a hill? It said that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's elevated. It's in this dark land. You have the city and you're like, you're, you're like wow. That is shining light into the darkness corporately as a body of redeemed people in the gospel of Jesus out to penetrate the darkness. What a beautiful picture. It cannot be hidden. And he goes on with what else cannot be hidden. Look, at he talks about a lamp. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and, and it gives light to all in the house. It's absurd to think that you would have this one of these little oil lamps, a little wick hanging out of it, and just light it up for this little small room and just stick a basket on top of it. That's ridiculous. No, put that baby up on a stand. Let's shine some light through the whole house. And now look at the point. The point is verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your distinctiveness as a believer and our distinctiveness as a church is only going to be seen as we're around other people. It's only going to be seen as we start to engage the world as a city sit on a hill and a light up on a stand. And this will happen as we step out in faith and demonstrate good works. You see, the Christian life is more than our little private devotions and our corporate worship service. Too many of us think that the Christian life is all about doing your devotions in the morning, if you're a good Christian, and showing up to church on Sunday. And I know you think this, because I'm, I'm, I'm not dogging you too much, just a little. But I know you think this, because I will ask you, as your pastor, how are you doing spiritually? So when you, whenever you hear me ask that, watch out. I'll ask you, how are you doing spiritually and how your, is your walk with the Lord? And 99.9% .9 of the time, you will tell me, I'm, I'm doing okay reading the Bible. Uh, I don't pray as much as I ought to, but I, I, I want to get better. And I come to church twice a month at least, so that's okay. And so you'll describe to me, your, your walk with the Lord is all about Bible reading and prayer and going to church. And Jesus is saying, okay, that's fine. Yes, absolutely. Abide in me. 
Apart from it, you can do nothing. But it's also more than that. It's about engaging the world as a distinct people. And you do this through good works. So when I ask you the question, how are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with the Lord? Say stuff like, man, God's doing something in me. I notice my speech is a lot, lot kinder now. And God's dealing with my anger issue and my, my purity issue. And I'm starting to get a heart for the poor. And, you know, I feel like God wants me to give a huge chunk of my money to alleviate suffering over here. And God just really stirs me up for justice and mercy. And I'm kind of taking steps of faith. And I'm sharing the gospel with people in my dorm. I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate good works by his grace. We just can't say it's all about our quiet time and all about our church attendance. Are, are you with me on that? What is Jesus saying? How we engage. You engage through good works. The world is not impressed that you do a quiet time. Nor that you come here. They don't care that you're here. They're not, they don't even know about you. And they won't know about you until you engage. And that happens to live in this distinct life expressed through good works. And it's not for your glory. It's for the glory of God alone. No praise should go to you, only to God. Look what it says in verse 16. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now that is quite a different response than what we saw earlier about the persecution. But here, there are some people that will see your good works and they will start to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And those who are in the world, they're not giving glory to God because you're such a good moral person. What they're seeing is that you're a follower of Jesus and that you're distinctly connected to him. And so these good works that we're talking about, they come out of a relationship that we have with Jesus. You understand what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about producing these in and of yourself. I'm talking about you have a relationship as you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ through the atoning suffering on the cross, his burial and resurrection, he has saved you, has put his Holy Spirit in you, and now that is displayed in your works as they shoot out of you in this world, and the praise does not come to you, but it goes to your Father. Are, are, are you with that, okay? It's about God's works being produced in us. The world sees, and some of them respond by giving glory to God. So it's not about you. It's about him. Jesus has fundamentally transformed us. He has fundamentally changed us. And it's through these good works that he gets the glory. So God, in his grace and for his glory, is telling us in his word how not to lose your saltiness. God, in his grace, for his glory, is telling you how not to hide your light. God, in his grace, for his glory, is telling you how to have maximum impact as light and salt on this earth, and it comes through good works. I mean, does it bother you to have this good works terminology coming out this morning? I mean, we're not talking about this is what happens to get you saved. No, it's saying that the saved produce these works because they are saved. It is the fruit of a regenerate life. It's what comes out of those who are saved. So we're not talking about do good works to get saved. But no, this is just naturally us and our identity. And we want to live in our identity as much as we can on this earth. And that will come through saltiness. That will come through bearing light. And that comes by demonstrating good works. 
and, and I'm not, I'm not going to yell this morning. I just want to make sure you understand that Jesus has fundamentally changed us through his life, death, and resurrection, and that will lead to gospel action. Not just talk, but action. Do you realize how dangerous it is to just stay with a Christian life that is full of talk? that doesn't lead to obedience and action? Do you know how dangerous it is to study the Word of God and then to go away and not do anything? We want to be a people empowered to move out with action, good works. So I was saying earlier, I was reading this book about kingdom ethics. And if you think it doesn't matter what we're talking about this morning, it does matter. And the story they tell is during the Holocaust. Did you know that Christians, some Christians, actually stepped up during the Holocaust and attempted to hide Jews? Did you, did you know that? They attempted to hide Jews. Christians did this. So the, the Nazis were out to kill the Jews, and some Christians helped them. And this is what the authors said about these Christians helping the Jews hide them from the Nazis. This is what they said. This is really good. Listen to this. It was not enough to pray for the Jews. It was not enough to hope for the best for the Jews. It was not enough to wish, oh, I wish someone would help the Jews. It was not enough to say, oh, I have compassionate feeling toward the Jews. Or I just dream of this better world there where Jews and no one else is murdered. Nor was it enough to have good intentions to help the Jews. Oh, maybe we should do something to help the Jews. Or it wasn't enough to, to, to talk about making these grand plans. Well, let's draw up some plans to help the Jews. They said, no. What had to happen was for Christians to welcome needy Jewish strangers into their homes and to provide this much food and, and that much money and offer hiding places and hygienic services and medical cares and, and false identification and transportation and protection and to do all such things like this at indefinite risk to themselves constantly. And what happens now? When we're many years past, what happens now when we reflect upon all the Christians who hid Jews back then? What do we think about it? We think... We give glory to God in heaven. Even non-Christians give glory to God in heaven for what those Christians did, right? You can go to some of these, these Jewish Holocaust museums and they're giving glory to God in heaven for what the Christians did many years ago. But when the Christians did that, many of them were insulted, persecuted, and a lot of them were killed for doing that. but they did it. They obeyed. They didn't talk about it. They did it. They were salt and they were light and God gets the glory through their good works. But this is what is so startling. You ready for this? Are you ready for this? Most of the Christians didn't do jack. They didn't do nothing. They didn't, they didn't do anything. Just they sat there and did nothing. It's like, how's that possible? 
is because they were living lives that were not sacrificial. They were in churches. They didn't talk about sacrifice. They didn't talk about actually doing good works. And who knows whatever else is involved. But, but it seems like most of the Christians didn't do anything. And I would hate it. I would hate it, hate it, hate it if I'm grooming you to just do nothing with your life. Because it is so dangerous to talk. It is so dangerous for me to preach sermons because me just preaching does not equal me actually doing something. And you getting together talking about the Bible and getting your ethos and you talking doesn't mean you do anything. And we don't want that to be us. We don't want people to look back 60 years from now and say, that bunch of Christians didn't do anything. They're just a bunch of talk. So here's our way forward. I'm going to give you permission to not stress out about saving the world. Don't, don't try to save the world, okay? Just, just take that pressure off you. Don't go out of here and think, oh, my God, to save the world. No pressure. Don't be stressed. But please, by God's grace, as you're transformed by the gospel, do something where you're at. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what influence you have. I don't care how small, how big it is. God has given us different influence, different spheres that we run in. It's something different. But you are called to obey. You're just here for a few more, fi- a few more months before you graduate. Fine, obey now. You're going to be here five more years. Obey. You're going to be here for the rest of your life. I don't care. Obey. God has called us by his grace to obey, to function as salt and light with the people we know at our jobs, at our school. I don't care where. He has called us to obey. So don't stress out about saving the world. Start doing something right now where you live as salt and as light. Put yourself under the reign of king and may your identity come out by his grace, by his power, and be expressed. Change the world around you. Maximum impact all for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is either true or it's not, and and help us to believe that it's true. You have transformed us by your cross, by your death and resurrection. We have a new identity and you're pushing us out as salt and light. And, and, and a lot of us, we just don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like persecution. We don't like suffering. And yet there's such reward. And we do this because we love you. We love you. We're connected with you. We're transformed by you. We're saved by you. So Lord, where we need to obey and share in the gospel, where we need to obey and bringing peacemaking, where we need to obey and bringing sacrificial giving, where we need to obey and leaving everything, selling it all and giving it to the poor and following you, where we need to obey and leaving everything here and going overseas, or wherever we need to obey, big stuff, small stuff, in our communities, with our neighbors, people in the dorm, wherever, Lord, help us to step up and obey. Do what we know to do is in your commands, in your word, and to do it. And to no longer be people of just talk, but people of talk plus action. And not for our glory, but for your glory. Do a work within us, Lord. Do a continual work within us. And we love you. Thank you for including us in your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.